Hello and welcome aboard the Battleship Retention. I am Tyler Smith. I'm David Bax. And thank you for listening. David was stretching and was clearly getting into it. No, I was just not. I was literally not thinking. I was thinking about. I will say to you what I we say. Were talking about Mike, I was like, am I getting sick? Am I going to oh. get sick? Because our guest is sick. Yeah. And you're going to uh, ruin it for everyone. I don't have any time. I, uh, I don't have time to get sick right now in my life. I start school <laughs> again in a few days. And, uh, yeah, I really don't feel like getting sick. Although frankly, going back to school, I probably will. Cause I'm going to be teaching all these like 18 and 19 year olds. Who don't, know how to, kids. don't know how to clean themselves yet. <laughs> but, uh, anyway. So. All right. So, uh, who's our guest? Our guest, you know what? I, I don't think he's even a guest. Okay. He's like a resident. All right. Like, like Billy Joel at Madison Square Garden. Is that true? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. All right. I mean, not currently, but he the did. Billy Joel of battleship pretension. <laughs> Scott, Scott and I, I just, mean. just as dumb and just as flashy. <laughs> yeah. I didn't mean to lump you in with Billy Joel. Um, okay. Do you oh. refer to Julie as your uptown girl? Oh, every day. I hate that song <laughs> so much. I like it as with all Billy Joel songs. I really like it. And I hate myself for liking it because sure. it's so stupid. Yeah. Um, They're all so stupid. I, I hate what he does with his voice in the thing. <laughs> girl. Like it, but it's not Southern. Like it's just, he does right. this little, thing that just makes me want to claw my eyes out but then my yeah, ears are all, still there so why do i, why I even do that <laughs> sorry um, but I, here's what I, I wanted to bring up something that came up on uh on film twitter today um which you're not a part of it should be clear i am above film twitter um <laughs> observing but it, it from above yeah. you're kind of the puppet master <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh no but uh, there was a discussion i'm not sure why it uh, who was who first brought it up because it's not the first time it came up but the idea that we are living in the golden age of superhero movies, just like oh, there was, was, who was it? It was uh, Dr. Strange director, Scott Derrickson, who brought this up. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That much like there was a golden age of Westerns and a golden age of noir movies. Like we're in the superhero equivalent of that now. And we're just too, you know, forest of the trees to realize it. It's not the first time someone said this sort of thing, but I guess maybe because of the, uh, the source, I guess it, it seemed to be getting talked about a lot when I was on Twitter. Too. By the way, I thought you were making a j- for a moment. I thought you were making a joke and saying like like Doctor Strange director over here, like instead of Strange <laughs> no. Love. But no, the director of Doctor Strange, literal Scott director. Yes. Uh, no, the topic comes up from time to time. Devin Frotch used to bring it up all the time. That exact comparison, in fact, to westerns and stuff. Uh, but it's dumb. <laughs> but here, and that's my my initial reaction uh, was. Um, yeah, that's not right because it's like there's there's essentially two stories being told. Right. It's not a whole panoply or whatever. It, it's just, you know, it's a very narrow thing. But then I started to think, I started to realize, like, it's not going with the analogy uh, or with the argument that we can't see it like forest of the trees, that kind of stuff. It's not really up to us. It's really, it's the people who are kids now who are going to grow up to be film critics and cultural mavens or whatever, who are going to decide whether or not this is a golden age. That's what I was going to say is like, you can't declare a golden age when you're in the middle of it. Even if you are, even if it is a golden age, you can't declare that now. Well, I think his argument was like, we should appreciate it. You know, people back then didn't appreciate the golden age of Westerns was happening, which is not exactly true. But um, he was, I think, saying that we should, you know, take stock of where we're at and appreciate all the apparent luxuries we're experiencing. Before the bubble pops? I don't know. That's just, the way I'm it's more it. just like, you know, you want to you want to recognize when you're in the middle of a good time, no matter what situation you're talking about. Sure. Um, but so I think that's his argument as much as I may disagree with it. 
I mean, I think the main thing for me is, yeah, there's just not enough of them. They're all the same, like, scale. There's no kind of B superhero movies. And like David said, it's all kind of the same couple stories. That's true. And I guess when you think about Westerns and film, yeah, totally. you know, film noir, then, yeah, there are the A-level and like, oh, look at these stars slumming it a little bit. Yeah, but the whole reason but, they are slumming it is because there are B-level ones. Or but not even slumming it. I mean, like... Double Indemnity got Oscar nominations. Yeah, you know, I mean, true. some of these were major motion pictures, but then like uh, Peggy Cummins died this week, RIP. Uh, and she was really only in gun crazy. That's like her mm-hmm. only role. Cause it was this movie. No one cared about at the time, but now it's widely yeah. remembered as a classic. Yeah. Is there um, a golden age of horror? Uh, I don't know. I feel like there's a, there's a different one because I think horror is too broad a genre. And okay. so I think there's like, you know the slasher comes and goes but then there's yeah. also like the you know the the haunted house movie comes and goes like there are different kinds yeah. and there was of course torture porn which i still hate that term i guess um, when you think yeah you'd have to think about more specifics like i would say if there is a golden age of the slasher movie it's the 80s because there's just so many of them some bigger budget some lower and just one for every holiday um so yeah i guess you're right it would have it couldn't be all of horror in the same way there's no golden age of comedy um but the thing i wanted to uh, that you made me think of actually just just now um or or a few minutes ago was the the idea of the b superhero movie because there were those for a little bit there there was like super and like griff the invisible if anyone remembers that don't remember that (laughs) um and like it seemed like that never that never took off and so maybe if that if that had continued right maybe would the the argument would be more solid but i'm not sure why we just pared down to just the big budget ones like do we do we look at some of the superhero movies of the 90s and consider those like the phantom for example i mean those are fairly big budget but they're also they don't exactly feature huge stars i guess you know there was billy zane who and stuff like the shadow or dark man you know not necessarily i guess alec baldwin was a big actor at the time but uh i don't know i feel like i can't consider them b-level as far as budget but as far as visibility and profile they feel very b-level to me but they're not part of this current no not at all anyway i mean yeah i don't know i'm not sure where you would draw where you would pinpoint the beginning of this wave i mean is it i think people look at spider-man i'd say probably that it feels like even x-men didn't necessarily kick it off it oh i like, agree it's like x-men allowed spider-man to happen right and then that started everything yeah because mm-hmm. i mean blade allowed x-men to happen so yeah, it's, it's, true. it's like there's always and see, i think the thing with spider-man is you got the costume in there and uh, yeah. there was a lot of doubt that people would take seriously a big colorful yeah. costume which is why the x-men wore black leather um, and so I think once you could pull that off, that really got the train rolling. That's true. Yeah. And he's able to do everything. <laughs> well, do everything a spider can, um, so I've heard. you know, but like he's, is he tough? I, that's the only part I know about the song. What, what's the rest? What is it? No, it's is, not easy. Tough. It's is he strong. Oh, okay. Well, it's listen, bud. Yeah. He's got, he's radio- got radioactive blood. <laughs> <laughs> that's I remember. Uh, the tough is better. Tough. Be tough. <laughs> uh, special features on Ang Lee's Hulk. There was like this hour long thing about the creation of the Hulk. And uh, there was this one guy who I don't remember who he was. He might've just been like a, a, an illustrator or something like that. And he was talking about the old, uh, the old like seventies cartoon of the Hulk and the, the theme song at one point they say, uh, gamma rays and at one point a woman comes in and says like ain't he unglamorous <laughs> and then it cuts it cuts to this guy and he's like he goes you can just picture the guy being like honey 
Hey, <laughs> what's something that kind of rhymes with tamarind? <laughs> um, all right. Well, we talked about that, so let's pay some bills. Absolutely. This episode is brought to you by Mubi, a curated online seminar that brings its members a hand-picked selection of the best independent, international, and classic films. Every day, Mubi's curators introduce a new title, and you have 30 days to watch it. That means there's always 30 wonderful films to enjoy, all for only $5.99 a month. Plus, when you use their mobile apps, you can download films to watch offline. Currently available on Mubi are The Trip and The Trip to Italy, featuring Steve Coogan and Rob Brydon. With the recent release of The Trip to Spain, rounding out a, an unlikely trilogy, uh, Mubi is featuring the first two off-kilter journeys, a double feature of hilarious improvisation and food porn. And I'm sure many people, these things got shared around uh, on YouTube a lot, just the uh the dueling uh, impressions of various people like uh right. michael kane and then sometimes just impressions of no one in particular but like them both being like okay how can let's let's try and be james bond villains and so oh, yeah you know come come mr bond surely you take you derive as much pleasure from killing as i do and they just go back and forth <laughs> yeah um and it's uh, quite delightful and in the midst of this uh, I did an episode, uh, I did a more than one lesson episode about the trip many years ago because they're oddly melancholy. Oh, they're Those very films. melancholy. Did you see the latest one? I didn't. It's I, really good and has a ending you will not see coming. Okay. I will have to keep a, I have to keep an eye out for it. But look, if I hadn't, you know, I haven't seen it. And if listeners have not seen the first two, they're not going to be able to follow that. No, third one. <laughs> there's no chance <laughs> guys traveling around eating. <laughs> you need context for that kind of thing, man. Uh, and you can find that context at Mubi. And there is a special offer for listeners of Battleship Pretension. You can try Mubi free for a month. Just go to Mubi.com. That's M-U-B-I.com slash Battleship to redeem now. Or you can just go to BattleshipPretension.com and click on the Mubi ad on the left hand side we'd prefer you did please do um i want to tell you about uh tweakedaudio.com which is where you go not a tweaked audio i just say oh, a lot tweakedaudio.com where you go for professional quality earbuds in a variety of stylish styles and colorful colors they look great they sound great uh tyler and i use them each and every day of our lives uh today i was listening to animal collective's 2004 album sung tongs because they just did a um where they played the whole album live, and I was like, well, I'm not going to listen to that. I'll just listen to the album. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, it's, it's strange, given what they what they are, how that album is kind of, I don't know, quiet, somnambulant almost, complete, compared to how nuts some of their later stuff is. Anyway, uh, they sounded great, and these songs sounded great on my tweakedaudio.com earbuds, uh, and that's what's really important here. So um, these things are available at a low, low price over at tweakedaudio.com, but if you use the offer code pretension at checkout, you get one-third off that low, low price. So go to tweakedaudio.com or click on the ad uh, at battleshippretension.com and use the offer code pretension. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Now, what do I have? We have a, we have a gift, uh, a postcard. Here. Okay. 
um, from from our friend Peter, who likes to send us postcards from all over the place. Indeed. This one's from Hell's Kitchen, except no, it's not. Okay. It's not from Daredevil's Stomping Grounds. It's from a restaurant called Hell's Kitchen in Minneapolis. That's disappointing. That's No, I think it's clever. <laughs> I think it's clever. Um, um, so, yes, he says uh, some very nice things uh, that he ate. He ate at Hell's Kitchen three days in a row um, <laughs> on a business trip. So I'll make sure to stop by Minneapolis. You've been to Minneapolis. Yeah, my uh, wife's family lives there. And so yeah. uh, I've been to Minneapolis, St. Paul uh, many times. Well, stop by Hell's Kitchen. You got a nice, uh, a fun Ralph Steadman drawing. On Don't the, tell me uh, what to do. On the postcard. Um, and also... Everybody okay. likes Ralph Steadman. I feel bad, or maybe I don't. I don't know. Looking at these uh, cooks, are we uh, meant to be put in mind of uh, phallic imagery? I feel like yes, right? Um, I didn't think about like that, but now at, I certainly looking at their with, hats. with the hats. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, Ralph Steadman doesn't fuck around with this, that sort of thing. That's true. Um, yeah. He's got one, one cook looks like he's cutting his finger off. He's cut a rat in half. It's, yeah, it definitely doesn't look like... Who doesn't want to eat at that restaurant? Yeah. Um, it's daring you to eat there, which makes, yeah, uh, I guess I'm, uh, I can't resist that dare. <laughs> um, okay. Well, thank you, Peter. Indeed. Thank you so much. Um, man, I am so in my head right now about getting sick. <laughs> I had to tell oh, you, man. like I'm convincing myself that I'm getting I've sick haunted right you. Now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I swear to God, <laughs> if I get sick, <laughs> um, Okay, uh, let's talk about what's on the website. Uh, let's see. What the hell are you watching, guys? Finally caught up with three billboards outside of Ebbing, Missouri. Let's see if they are as disappointed as the rest of us. That's <laughs> right. I never got to talk to our friend Scott about uh, his disappointment. With it's it. bad. There we go. <laughs> um, uh, Alex at the Criterion well, Prediction wrote about Dead Man, but apparently... It's dead, good. But apparently Dead Man's already coming to Criterion. That's like, Is uh, it? Yeah, they teased it pretty heavily. Oh, oh they okay. teased it. Okay, so it's yeah. not... All right, so, um, uh, and then look what's back. I'm literally just seeing this for the first time. I wondered if I'd catch you by surprise. <laughs> yeah, um, well, Aaron wrote his weekly Chicago rep port about mm-hmm. the rep screenings uh, in Chicago, and Scott has returned to writing the L.A. rep port uh, column. So we got two rep ports, uh, and those are reports about what what's at rep theaters, one for L.A., one for Chicago. Um that's so fun. I'm so glad that uh, we've got both cities. Yeah, we decided to bring it back uh, before the new Beverly announced they'd be closed for an undisclosed number of months. Uh, so oh, it might be long? a little sparse at first, but we'll see how it goes. I didn't realize they were going to be closed for that long. They said at least January, so I guess we'll see. Hey, here's a fun Hello. fact, oh. speaking of such things, uh, kind of. Uh, my mom uh, recently, she and her uh, husband uh, moved to Texas last year and uh she sent a, a text saying like uh oh i'm at uh alamo draft house uh watching some film and uh thus making it uh shamefully uh, a shameful fact that uh my mom has been to an alamo draft house before i have um and i know it's not that big of a deal yeah but i mean for, if you're just not around there yeah and i guess is there one here yet, or no. is it still just no. supposed to be here downtown? I, mean, I think we somewhere. even know where the. Don't we know where the building is supposed I'm to be? Pretty downtown? sure. Yeah, I remember looking at it on a map and being like, "Well, that's inconvenient." Yeah, but it's yeah. I don't know if it's ever going to happen. I don't know. I've never I mean, been to any theater that serves you food. I went to one by accident. Uh, I can in, see that uh, in Simi Valley, and uh, I was like, "Yeah, what the hell? I'll Wait, order some chicken strips." Why were you in Simi Valley? Because that. Uh, 
it was a certain time of day. Nobody was available. And I was like, fuck it. I'm going to go see mother. And this, uh, and that was the only theater playing it. And so I drove to see me, which oh, that's is fun. not that far of a drive from where I am. No, not at, yeah, um, not at all. Especially after a certain time of night. And so it's like, yeah, sure. I'll get uh, some chicken strips and some well, fries. Yeah, that's where my wife's from. I, I, yeah, I, I haven't said, seen you uh, all the time. You should have dropped in on my sister-in-law. It would have been weird. <laughs> probably at about ten fifteen at night. <laughs> Could have brought her some chicken strips. How yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, all right, I'm definitely getting sick. <laughs> you can get over it between now and Sundance, though. If you got oh, sick right sure. now. You can do it. And really, yeah, you're go- so you're going to Big Bear this I'm weekend. Going to Big Bear this weekend. So I'm going to be sick at Big, but Big then, Bear. No, what are you doing next week? My mom's going to be in town. I mean, uh, before, but in the week in between, nothing. Yeah. Yeah. So you won't. It won't manifest Wait, no, that's not in true. you. Fuck. <laughs> I have a big thing on Wednesday. The a bear. You'll be over it by then. I better, I better get sick. The right symptoms now. will probably set on Sunday. Monday and Tuesday will be bad, and by Wednesday you'll be good to go. All right. All right. <clears throat> yeah. Um, I blame you. Uh, I blame you. Scott. That's all right. Um, you can blame Julia. Actually, she was sick first. Uh, no, actually, I went to a New Year's Eve party and both the hosts between setting the party and the party happening both came down with colds and decided to still have the party to be nice to their friends. Right. Uh, so both the people who hosted the party uh, had colds. Sneezing in your drinks. Yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> I hate when that happens, when it just like it feels like an illness should fade in. But there have been times where it's like, I wake up, everything's fine, and I'm good for like nine hours. And then suddenly it's like, hey, there's a tickle in my throat. Cut to like 15 minutes later. It's like, <laughs> yeah. I feel horrible. Yeah. How did this happen so fast? Yeah. Damn. All right. Um, so it's, the, it, it's 2018, guys. Which means it's the most—it's the true most wonderful time of the year. Uh, it's award season. It's award season, but that means it's time for us. You know, uh, unlike you know the Gotham Awards, who took care of this back in October, it's yeah. time for us to look back on the year that was, uh, and we're going to spend the next three months doing. Yeah. Well, not two months doing so, um, and we're going to kick off uh, as has been our tradition for the past couple of years with Scott's top ten of the previous year. Um. This is this feels a little weird to me because it I, it kind of doesn't feel like the year is over yet because the Village Voice Critics Poll isn't out yet. That's your measure. Yeah, I, I, I don't think I realized it was okay until this year, and I'm like, how is it? How is it like? We're how are we doing this already? That's the way I look at it. Yeah, yeah. I was like, how are we doing this already? Because usually it comes out the last week of December, but I guess because the Village Voice isn't print anymore, hmm. they weren't really caring about that sort of deadline gotcha. so they're just doing it online uh and it should be soon based on my sources but it, it does feel weird uh um that the village voice critics poll which i think i guess i subconsciously thought of as like the button on the year that allowed us mm. to move forward into what we do uh but uh now my new uh measuring uh my new milestone is going to be scott's list as it should have been from the start <laughs> so the let's, golden uh, globes are this weekend <clears throat> things are happening I know. Yeah, things are happening for our uh, our fantasy awards draft. Like we got ba- like the new year happened, and then there was just like this this Armageddon of yeah. critics awards, and uh, like all happened in like one day. Well, none of us were paying attention over the that's long true. weekend, so that's a lot of that. All right, all right. Well, let's get into it, shall we? Sure. Uh, by way of introduction, I usually say that there's no such thing for a, as a bad year of cinema, and I stand by that. I I do think this was a lesser year of cinema, though. I will. We'll say that. Uh, I don't think this was as strong as last year for sure. 
2015, maybe comparable. Uh, this didn't quite have a, a movie as good as The Assassin, though, which was 2015. Uh, but there was still some uh, excellent stuff. But I, I, the reason I bring that up is that uh, this is by way of saying that uh, Twin Peaks, The Return, was better than anything I saw in the movies. But it is contrary to the opinion of large swaths of the internet, not a movie. Um, so it will not be appearing on my list. Nor it's should frustrating it be. frustrating that those swaths are so large. I know. It's such an obvious fact. And yet. I blame OJ Made in America. But at least that was in a theater somewhere. Yes, yes, that's true. But I, I think it got people thinking, they're like, oh, I think we can do this. There's always been these corners of the cinephile community that be our butts about TV stuff. Yeah. People have been including like Hannibal or Bojack Horseman on their year end lists. And in a certain level, it's all moving pictures. But if we don't have standards, you know. Yeah, <laughs> and trying to live in a society here. <laughs> and while I recognize that stuff like Bojack Horseman, because it's streaming and you can watch it all in one sitting like yeah i guess people could look at it differently than people have looked at tv in the past which is meant to be like okay you're watching this and it'll it'll pay off in a week then it'll set something up and pay off in another week like that is notably different dramatically and narratively from movies and so and so now that gap is being shortened significantly so i guess i understand why people might think of it like that but hannibal isn't that no. twin peaks wasn't that no. so like it, and I, actually I think, I think david lynch fought for getting it uh, aired week to week yeah and i think that was a big part of the pleasure of watching it for those of us who kept up with it is like watching each episode and having it grow in the week in between and having your imagination kind of run wild with it i i think it, yeah this thing is just about that there's still a lot of uh, surprisingly to me, there's still a lot of anti-TV oh, snobbery. Sure. Yeah. And so it's just film people who are surprised to find that they <laughs> like the TV show as much as, you know, any one of 10 movies, uh, uh, because they think of TV still as lesser. It's like, well, he, he, he's a film director, so we can get right. this, right? Yeah. So, and I was going to say, oh, well, then why, you know, why not put true detective? And I remember, oh, I think some people did put true detective sure they on did. Their list. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, anyway, so that with that out of the way, uh, also worth acknowledging that it, uh, 2017 was a tough year for everyone, I think, uh, what, what's, go, what's going on in the world, um, and in a way that I think tends to seep into our personal lives. I know I was more impatient around people than I typically am, and I think uh, the general wariness on society has uh, been a factor. Uh, but as far as my approach to the movies go, I think it made me more attentive to those that kind of melt, made me feel connected to people mm-hmm. and made me feel connected to myself and the world around me. Um, so as unimportant as art might be in that larger context in terms of we're still you know, fighting for some basic freedoms, uh, I think it, it did, at least for me, it reminded me of our uh, shared humanity quite a bit. Which brings me to my number 10 pick which I'm cheating and is actually a three-way tie, though I will, for the purposes of the website, I will have a primary pick that can serve as uh, the image and the uh, vote for the BP top 10. Thank you. Okay. Uh, but I will get to that last. Uh, the, the other two, I'll start with Faces Places, the documentary by Agnes Varda and JR, which in which they travel the French countryside, uh, photographing locals and making them part of these grand art installations. Um, and it's just a film that really uh, reminds one, like I said, of just how much everyone has in common. You know, these are two career artists. Agnes Varda is in her late 80s, if not 90s by this point. Um, but she, everywhere she goes, she's just trying to find uh, some 
commonality with the people she encounters. And it's also a great meditation on her aging and her legacy and so many other things. But I think that's the primary job and primarily what gave me and so many other people so much joy is seeing those kind of connections happen in real time. Well, relatively speaking. Um, and which brings me to the second of the three, uh, I forgot to, oh wait, no, I did take a son's name, uh, Jairus McLeary and Gethin Aldis's The Work, uh, which is an outstanding documentary. It's about, uh, there's, I guess there's a program at Folsom Prison where the prisoners do uh, weekly therapy meetings. And then once a year for four days uh, for a kind of intensive process, they bring in members of the public to join in on that uh, therapy process. Um, and it's as intense as it sounds. I mean, they really dig into some heavy, heavy stuff. Um, but I think the primary purpose there is to show people from the outside world how much they have in common with people who are behind bars. And I spent some time back when I was more involved in uh, churchy type things, visiting prisoners. I thought you were going to say you spent some time in prison. <laughs> <laughs> My dark past that I've never unveiled. Uh, well, I guess I did. I mean, I visited prisoners, so I spent some time behind those, those thick walls. Um, and so this is something that I've always kind of taken for granted, but I think the more you get exposed to how people talk about prisoners is this kind of like other and this uh, segment of the population that they'll never have to think about. You realize that I guess, you know, not everyone realizes that people can end up in some crazy circumstances uh, without ever expecting to. And that's kind of the very thin line the work explores. You know, there reaches many points where you kind of lose track of who came in as a prisoner and who came in from the outside. Um, but it was very encouraging to me that there exists such a program. And as someone who uh, is a believer that the government can do a great deal of good in our lives, it's heartening to see a government program doing so many good, so much good in so many people's lives. Uh, which brings me to my primary pick, which is Frederick Wiseman's Ex Libris, the New York City Public Library, his three-hour and 19-minute documentary about the current state of the New York Public Library. Can I say... if? I know we have the category that this is movies, this is TV. What about movies that should be TV? Because <laughs> <laughs> movies are too fucking long. Uh, I, 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 Except I nobody, no ad wants to, no company wants to sponsor it. Yeah. Uh, uh, well, yeah. they regularly air on PBS without advertisements, so there, there you, you go. go. Um, yeah, that's how I saw at Berkeley. On PBS? Yeah. Oh, really? Good yeah. for you. <laughs> I don't know why you're so <laughs> No, it's good to support PBS. Um, oh, yeah, I always support PBS. Uh, I disagree, though. They are, they are not television. They are cinema. Um, and they're not too long for the cinema. There's plenty of movies. Uh, I remember seeing or Return of the King, I think, was over three hours. Uh, around that same time, Alexander, the Oliver Stone movie, I remember being exceedingly long. There are movies throughout history that are way too long. Um, yeah, uh, but still good. They're still good. Uh, Beloved Sisters a few years ago was like three and a half hours yeah. or something. But That's I, a good I, movie. That movie was really good. Well, so is Ex Libris, okay. the New York City Public Library, um, which spends surprisingly a little time, uh, given what I expected to go into it, um, actually on the circulation of books. Um, Wiseman's kind of vision of the library is much grander and much more engaged with how it's a cultural force in terms of having jobs programs, in terms of renting out laptops, in terms of just many different ways in which information can be distributed nowadays. Uh, and he kind of envisions it, I think, as kind of a micro society. Uh, you know, there's a governing board that has to make 
budgetary decisions. And then you see all the way down to how those macro decisions make a very concrete difference in people's lives. You know, like I said, as they receive these laptops to connect themselves to utility that for most of us is absolutely necessary to get by in the world, uh, but which still many people aren't connected to. Um, And so, like I said, uh, I I think with the year being what it is, there's a tendency, perhaps a softening, and we might look towards some films that champion those liberal worldviews that a few of us hold uh, in the face of them being trampled on in the public life. And I I generally tend to be resistant towards that. I I think when a movie is giving me what it thinks I want, I tend to look askew at it. Um, But in this case, uh, I I couldn't help myself. It was really heartening to see the New York public library system working as fully as uh, one would like it to be, at least uh, as Wiseman presents it. He could be lying to us. (laughs) And certainly better than the New York subway system, from what I understand. Yes. These days. Uh, Yeah. Uh, One of many reasons I'm glad to not be living in New York. I hope they make it through this weekend uh, relatively unscathed. Yeah. Uh, So from here, we'll get a little bit more navel-gazy and less uh, grandly societal. But like I said, I think uh, (laughs) the navel-gazy cinema, I think, uh, connects us to each other in uh, not necessarily equally important, but certainly important ways. Uh, So we'll start with that. We'll go with uh, David Lauer's A Ghost Story which I saw back in Sundance. And throughout the year, I've kind of worried I perhaps overvalued it. There was this very strong backlash to it when it was released commercially. Um, but the more I thought about it, the more I kind of dwelled in it and revisited it. I'd still like to pick up the Blu-ray at some point when A24's prices on those are a little steep. But uh, I'll catch it eventually. Um, so anyway, uh, the problem with Sundance premieres, of course, is how new everything is, and I think that's why they tend to be overrated, and I can't wait to do that round again, this, again, in a couple weeks here, um, on my third year of Sundance, but uh, I didn't know anything, really, about a ghost story, so, you know, everything from the aspect ratio to Casey Affleck's white-sheeted ghost costume felt very new to me, uh, and very thrilling to, uh, to see it in that context, um, but I think Lowry's able to connect all these kind of perhaps gimmicky aesthetic choices to something really interesting and really unusual in terms of uh, the idea of a ghost kind of haunting a place and how that he takes that to a certain stream, but also connecting that to the idea of living out on one's own, which uh, he kind of established early on in Casey Alvick's love of the house and his sense of history and how cut off he and Rooney Mara feel from the rest of the world. Uh, there's an idea, I think, by the time new people start moving into the house after he's haunted it for a number of years, that they shouldn't be invading his space, and he lashes out on them. Some people have felt uh, David Lauer's taking the ghost's point of view there. I don't know where they get that impression, but uh, you, you keep looking like you're about to say something, David. Oh, I, I have plenty to say, because okay. I, love, I love this movie. Uh, I guess just to wrap up my thought, um, yeah, I, I think the larger point there is how isolated he becomes as he further cements himself inside uh, this space and how lonely and quietly heartbreaking I think that is. Uh, This is a movie where there's so many times where I am part of the backlash as in like three billboards this year. There's so many times when I think the backlash are just a bunch of haters as in La La Land (laughs) last year. Here's one where it's like every backlash because I love a ghost story, but every like when people have 
that when that backlash happened, I was like, no, I get it. I understand because there are gimmicks, you know, right. the, uh, you know, like you used to mention the aspect ratio and the sheet and, and, and stuff. And also it does something that I normally hate, which is that the centerpiece, the most dialogue heavy scene in the movie is Will Oldham telling you what the movie is about, yeah. which I normally would hate, but it's a great scene. Uh, and the fact that it comes in the middle of the movie and you get to sort of see it, uh, play out. I don't know. The movie, I think walks right up against annoying me and never did. I mean, that's why it's, uh, you know, we'll see. I still have movies, you know, we will do our top 10 list in a little bit. So I can't tell you exactly where uh, a, a ghost story well, not will. Not a little bit. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's going to be a while. Before the Oscars, though. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. I can't tell you exactly where a ghost story will fall, but probably higher on my list than number nine. All right. Uh, well, higher on my list than that is uh, number eight, Rebecca Zlotowski's Planetarium, uh, which unfortunately received a very, very short uh, release. It was only in an L.A. theater for a week. I think it got the same in New York, but it's on VOD now if people want to go check it out. Uh, Zlotowski made a film called Grand Central that played at AFI Fest a couple years ago, which was a romance set on a nuclear plant, uh, which seemed quite ambitious in its own way. Uh, and this is even more so. This is quite insane. Uh, it takes place in the 1930s in France, shortly before uh, World War II. And there's kind of a loose idea that uh, they're all living through this time and they don't realize kind of what's coming. Um, and some people have taken that to be like the uh, thematic kind of purpose of the film but i think there's much more in fact there is it's just purely a plot level much more going on because it also involves uh natalie portman stars with lily rose depp as a pair of sisters who are traveling europe uh with their uh why can't i think of the right word for this people who like talk to ghosts and uh medium medium but what uh, seance their seance act uh okay i see which is completely real lily rose depp really can talk to ghosts um and from there, they catch the eye of a film producer who wants to not only put them in film, but wants to film an actual uh, ghostly apparition. And it starts getting into the whole film industry circa the 1930s, which, contrary to most films about the film industry in golden times, uh, the films they make actually look like the films that they made in the 1930s. The film stock is right. The shot structure is right. Um, and the scenarios they concoct are really imaginative. Uh, Natalie Portman eventually goes on to an acting career and she ends up starring in this movie uh, about essentially a threesome between her, a man, and his dead wife. Um, and so, like I said, it, there's a lot going on in this movie, but it kind of, uh, I found it really heartening to, that's, that someone had this much imagination uh, and this much kind of curiosity about uh, a time that's sometimes overexplored. You guys have talked about on the show, there being probably too many World War II movies <laughs> and too many movies about the, this particular era, but this is definitely completely unlike um, one I've ever seen. I'm really taken with Natalie Portman's post-Oscar career. I really like the kind of smaller, weirder avenues she's taken in films, even with something big like Jackie, which could have been like pure Oscar bait. Her performance in that is quite unusual and quite weird, uh, and I'm glad that she's still willing to kind of take chances. A lot of people kind of win Oscars and then fade away into very comfortable work, but she's still tackling some unusual territory, which I definitely appreciate. This was also co-written, I should mention, by uh, Robin Campillo, who wrote and directed Beats Per Minute, uh, which was another excellent film this year. Um, I worry that Hollywood is depleting its lily reserves. (laughs) 
Right? Because we had Lily Tomlin. Okay. We had Lily Taylor. We had Lily Rabe. And I've got Lily Collins and Lily Rose, Rose Depp. Depp. And there's another one, right? Gladstone. Oh, I didn't even know. Oh, Lily. yeah. From Certain Women. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then, oh, Lily James. That's right. From uh, Baby Driver, right? Yeah. Yes. And, and Lily Darkest Co- Hour. Oh, yeah, yeah, right. And Lily Collins is the one who was in Rules Don't Apply. Yes. Okay. I get them confused. Um, Understandably. Because um, there's, there's just too many lilies. I can't keep <laughs> them all straight. I had never thought about this problem before, but now I'll be haunted by it. <laughs> all right. Sorry. I feel like when I haven't seen the movie you're talking about, I still just to give you a break and a chance no, to I really drink appreciate some water, it. I have to say something dumb. Especially <laughs> with my uh, sore throat with the illness this week. Right. Uh, here's one you have seen, though. Number seven, Hong Sang Su's On the Beach at Night Alone. Uh, Again, the, we'll probably be higher on my list than yours. Why do you right. hate this movie so much, Scott? <laughs> I'm uh, just wondering what is going to be in your top five that uh, that I've apparently overlooked. Um, but we'll get some there. you haven't seen. Okay. Um, this was one of three movies he technically made this year, all of which will count for David's list. This is the only one that will count for mine. Um, oh, I see. <laughs> I'm making digs at David's silly way of categorizing movies. Um, I, I just... I, <laughs> I need to keep like my finger in the dike to keep from going insane <laughs> because if I start letting personal shopper in all these sleepless nights, look, if I were doing my 2016 list now, the top like La La Land would not be number one. It would be number three right. behind personal shopper and all these sleepless nights. But if I start letting one movie in two movies in next thing you know, I'm putting, I'm putting, uh, I don't know, postcards from the edge on my, <laughs> on my list. Judge trying to make any sense. <laughs> Twenty five years old. It's kind of an odd, slippery slope argument there, but that's that's fine. As I as I told you, it's a list of U.S. releases, and that makes it. But all that's not simple. what my list is. <laughs> but it could be. <laughs> but I'm fine with it. The thing is, it doesn't cause me. It causes other people <laughs> aggravation. It, it seems like bother me. It seems like it does when uh, the next year you're like, oh, if only I'd seen this last year, it would have been higher. It would have been able to put on a top ten list. It's kind of a guarantee that it's not going to be nominate, nominated for a BP. I'll say that. <laughs> um, yeah. Like, um, like if you submit Personal Shopper this year, I'm sorry, you're probably going to be the only one. No, uh, this or, year or last, okay. last year. Pardon yeah. me. Pardon me. Right. I, I didn't see it last year. I didn't yeah. see Personal Shopper until I guess January. Is that when it came out here? Was it was March? It? March. Wow. Yeah, fairly early. Um, uh, yeah. Sorry. March feels like January to me because I spend the first two months of every year <laughs> watching this. This is why I like yeah. to get my list out of the way early. But I would never like. I never. Break. There's always things. I was just thinking about this this morning. There's always something that ends up creeping into my top ten that was something I overlooked and watched. Yeah. Like what was the. I'm drawing a blank now. What was the David Gordon Green movie a few years ago with Paul Rudd and Emile Hirsch where they're painting uh, oh, yeah. lines on the Prince, highway? I was going to say Prince Avalanche. Yeah. Avalanche. Yes. Like I didn't, I just happened to catch, I had a screener I hadn't gotten to and I happened to watch yeah. it before we did our top 10 list. Ended up in my top 10. Yeah. You just got to get to everything earlier. I got, I, I got, <laughs> I don't have enough time for that. Ain't nobody got time for that. Uh, ain't nobody's have saints. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> on the beach at night alone. Uh, I am very glad that Hong Sang. I've always liked Hong Sang Su's film, but I'm, I'm glad he's broken free of these kind of rigid, repetitive structures. He used to be very heavy on coming you know, up with formulas, sometimes overly creative formulas to get uh, repeated scenarios and kind of very small variations on scenes. 
uh, to play in. His, his last film in that wave was uh, Right Now, Wrong Then, which was the exact same story back to back, except one thing was different at the beginning, which set everything else on a slightly different trajectory. Uh, and it was quite maddening to watch, I found. Um, but lately, he is completely uh, adrift from that, just as his protagonist can mean he is adrift from her latest relationship following a breakup. And I think the film really captures uh, the kind of free-floating uncertainty one feels after a breakup, after you know something you kind of set your life on to one degree or another has been removed and suddenly you can do anything. You know, So she travels a lot. She has a lot of dinners with friends, uh, none of which seems to bring her much happiness. She almost... she perhaps does get abducted at one point. Uh, she has a perhaps ghost washing her windows at one point. <laughs> Everything feels very unmoored and uh, very freeform in a way that I found very thrilling and which uh, I, I think ended up quite resonant. I was glad I saw this again because when David, you and I saw this at LA Film Fest, I was getting quite sleepy uh, towards the end. But seeing it again, I realized how much kind of uh, Hong Sang Soo built in the emotions of the film. It really comes to a head, I think, towards the end in a very effective way. I think On the Beach and Night Alone is the best Louise Boonwell film since that obscure object of desire. <laughs> That's a bold claim. <laughs> but uh, I, I certainly see the comparison. I just don't know if, I mean, how many films would uh, meet that category? There must be dozens. You think there are other, there are other films that are as Boonwell-ish? I mean, the guys had a big effect on movies. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure there are. But uh, yeah, this I, I think I'd only seen one Hong Sang Soo film before I'd seen this one, which is last year's yourself uh, and yours yourself and yours which i didn't think was um any great shakes uh but now i'm eager to dig into his work because i was really uh invigorated as you would have known if you weren't falling asleep by the end of our screening because <laughs> <laughs> i was like let's go it was at la film fest i was like yeah. let's go to the i'm sure you wanted the, to talk about it and uh, i yeah. would have fallen over the instant we walked into the bar or wherever <laughs> you were trying to get me to go <laughs> yeah the well there's the lounge where they had the okay. free beers um uh, yeah, if we had talked about it then, you would have seen. I was really invigorated. I was really, really into it. Well, I'm glad to hear it'll be higher on your list, as you clearly love it more than I do. Uh, <laughs> I clearly love more my number six pick. You like these transitions? I kind of <laughs> do. Essentially variations yeah. on the same transition. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good transition. What I do like is that when it comes right down to it, to it you're ultimately saying, like, tell you what's not higher than number seven is number six. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you are up on your numbers well, so much. As mentioned, I didn't sleep much last <laughs> night, and I'm getting ill. Uh, yes, so for those who aren't much on their numbers, number six uh, is Matthias Pinero's uh, Hermia and Helena. Uh, his last film, The Princess of France, was my number three film of 2015, so I was eagerly awaiting his latest film, which is his partial English-language debut. Uh, it stars Agustina Munez, who's a frequent collaborator of Pinero. She plays a young woman in her 20s traveling from Argentina to a program in New York, which is uh, giving her a grant to do a Spanish translation of A Midsummer's Night's Dream. Uh, in She's, of course, very excited. In the first time in New York, first time maybe in the States. Uh, but the whole film is kind of about the loneliness she feels and how distant she feels from just the way Americans conduct themselves. Not in, I think, a very snide way, just in the cultures are naturally different kind of way. And the way she approaches different scenarios, she isn't being uh, reciprocated in the same way. People's you know, attitudes and approach is very different. And she's not completely able to bridge that gap. Uh, Pinero himself, I guess, moved to New York 
uh, shortly after the princes of France and has been in a similar position himself from what I gather from interviews and such. Uh, and so it was interesting to see him reflect on that without doing kind of anything directly autobiographical. He's here, of course, on doing film work, not necessarily translating Shakespeare, although he's done a fair bit of that in his time. Um, and he of course is not a woman. Um, even though he writes, uh, female characters exceedingly well. And I was really taken with, uh, performance here and, uh, the way he kind of envisions, uh, especially a woman's experience here. You know, there's a, a guy who kind of runs the program she's in who seems to run the program purely so he can cycle through her various girlfriends who come through as part of the program uh, and she falls into his charms though not in any permanent way she also has kind of a fling with another New Yorker uh, but exceedingly brief because again they're just coming kind of at their lives from two very different uh, uh, points of view I suppose um, Pinero kind of purposely cuts out a lot of exposition so the film can be hard to follow, especially with a structure that keeps uh, flashing back to her last day in Argentina. Um, and even as the film moves forward in New York, so we get flashbacks that are like one month later and then a little bit, it'll be two months later, but it'll still be the same day. So all of which can be a little hard to keep track of, but I think this is kind of his most, um, in some ways focused and uh, easy to follow movie in part because it's his longest at a scant 89 minutes. Yeah. I was, well, yeah, I was going to say, uh, IMDb has 87. I was going to okay, say, I couldn't remember. I was going to say a veritable epic from Matias Pinero. Yeah. His last two films were both under 70 minutes. Yeah. And this is international travel. She goes to the suburbs of New York at one point. There's talk of moving to Montana. It's, it's a huge journey, uh, relatively speaking. Um, and yeah, that is available, I think, on VOD. It's certainly on Blu-ray. That's where I bought it. Um, but I think it's available for all to see. Uh, my number five is... Higher than number six. I was trying to get away from, the, from that transition, but you, <laughs> know, so we're, we're you dragged me back I in. think we might have... <laughs> okay. That I think we can sailed. all agree right here and now that we've run into the ground and we don't need to keep doing it. Has that ever I was going to say, I think you're just encouraging it to continue to be... uh, (laughs) Trying to turn over a new leaf in 2018. Hey, you know what? I get it. I get it. Uh, Number five, much more widely seen, uh, Luca Guadagnino's Call Me By Your Name, um, which I also saw back in Sundance. Uh, I seem destined to see this movie only in the coldest weather because I saw (laughs) this again a couple weeks ago during a cold snap in L.A., Um, which is too bad because it's a very sunny, very uh, cheerful movie. And it's a, it's a shame to walk out of this all bundled and cold. Um, but it, as I'm sure many people know, is about um, Timothy Chalamet plays a young man named Elio, who is on vacation with his, uh, kind of a working vacation with his parents. His father is uh, an archaeology professor who has taken on a new student for the summer term, uh, played Ar- Army Hammer. And before long, uh, the two young men get into a sort of attraction with one another that they delay consummating uh, I think in a very moving and effective way not the actual consummation although that is moving and affecting but the way they delay I think is uh, very human and relatable Uh, Timothy Chalamet kind of pursues it a little bit more Army Hammer has clearly had some experience in these situations and has not always been happy with their outcome and he kind of holds off his advances until he just can't resist it um you know this film is really good because all the backlash against it is a load of shit, I think. I don't know. <laughs> I didn't even know what the backlash is against oh this Oh my one. god, it's insufferable. Everything from the age difference between the two characters. I mean, Tilly Chalamet plays a 17-year-old, Armie Hammer plays a 24-year-old. And is he... 
And I know in the novel he's 24. Do they say his age in the movie? You know, rewatching it, I was kind of watching for that, and I, I don't, don't think, think so. Because I also rewatched it just like two weeks ago. But he's young enough to be a graduate student kind of yeah. studying abroad. It didn't bother me. Yeah, I mean, I I think I, we can take it as read that he's in his 80s. mid-20s. <laughs> you know, that I mean, that is a factor, too. Um I mean, all those, all these characters are on coke, you know, <laughs> obviously. Um, but I don't. I, I think there was kind of a larger cultural acceptance of those kind of relationships of various of kind of teenager adult relationships, not always to productive ends back then, but right. uh, it especially was, in Europe, right? Yeah. I mean, all these characters are American, so it doesn't really track. I, and they, uh, yeah, I guess. I mean, he says they're American, French, and Italian. But I think only by heritage. I think they right. live in America. Yeah. I, yeah. I, well, I, and you know that good old Heartland name, Elio. Right. Like you'll, <laughs> oh, you can't walk down the street without meeting at least three of them. Yeah. Well, I think that's one of the good angles of the film is that the family has a lot of pretensions. Um, mm. And that's also been part of the backlash is that Elio is just like this full of himself teenager. But that's what's to me so good about it. It's like. And having who, seen Lady Bird, I think they cast that part right. Uh, yeah. Just because he has he that plays that well. Yeah. Um, actually, in Miss Stevens, too, he kind of plays a full of himself teenager. Guy's got a type. Um but that's, I, I think, one of the best parts about it is that he is a teenager that I recognize certainly in myself. Um, this kind of guy who thinks he knows everything and thinks anything he could do would be the right move at any given time and kind of slowly end. But without any gr- great dramatic confrontation, I kept waiting for some confrontation between he and his parents that never really comes until when it does. It's incredibly moving, um, but isn't the kind of showdown you expect in these type of stories. Uh, and the movie's just so content to sit in the beauty of the place, in their relationship, in the actors' performances. Um, most of my favorite movies, especially these days, tend to be uh, focused on women because it's very rare to find films starring men that the director allows the camera to kind of admire them and just kind of let them float around. Uh, I don't want to purely ascribe this to this, but Luca Guadagnino is an openly gay man, and so maybe that gives him more uh, perceived freedom to uh, sit around and admire Timothy Chalamet and Army Hammer, but he certainly does, and I really appreciate uh, the time we get to spend just watching them lounge around, watching Armory Hammer flop in the pool. Uh, it's all very amusing and very touching. Uh, these just kind of small moments that add up to a very full portrait. And watching it again, I kind of wondered if it would be as moving, but by the time it gets to those last 20 minutes, it's mm-hmm. it's leveling, man. And not necessarily because it's sad. It does end up sad in a way, but I think in a very uh, natural way. Um, but just the moments of their vacation alone together are so beautiful that I couldn't help almost welling up. Um. I had the same uh, when you, when you were talking about seeing it in cold weather. I think I told this story back when we did our Sundance wrap up. The, I saw it the morning um, before I flew out. It was the last thing I saw yeah. at Sundance this year. And er, earlier that morning, I had seen The Polka King uh, coming to Netflix uh, this month. Finally, yeah, it's like next week or something. Um, and I had foolishly stayed for the Q and A of The Polka King, which meant that I missed the shuttle and I wasn't sure if I was going to make it to the Yarrow Theater to see Call Me by Your Name. And so uh, I walked it, and this was. It was like a blizzard, essentially. Yeah, all week. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so I showed up at the... Uh, I remember um, 
the, 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 the volunteer, like me walking up and saying, is there still room? Cause I was like, luckily there was still a seat. And I remember the guy like t- kind of being taken aback because I walked in looking like Jack Nicholson at the end of the shining. <laughs> like, I was just like covered in snow. And being, carrying an axe. That's the other thing. I think yeah. that threw him. Uh, yeah. So it was funny to, to suddenly be, you know, seeing people and, you know, putting on swim trunks yeah. and, and jumping into the water. I did have a question about the backlash because was anybody specifically the age thing? Yeah. Was anybody saying that at Sundance? I think there was talk of it potentially being an issue, but I don't remember anyone having that issue. So, you know, well, what happened between Sundance and and this (laughs) film getting a a theatrical release? Like, do you, I feel like that backlash, if this film would come out last year. Yeah. I feel like that line of like, there's a difference between people like "Eh, someone might have this problem. Like they're aware that someone might, but nobody does. Like, I feel like it's very much a function. You mentioned 2017 and just nature. But like, I think it's because of the year and I don't know. It could be, but it's also any film that gets talked about in awards season has some kind of backlash campaign against it, either generated by publicists or generated by people who eager to, pitch a freelance gig you know i mean there's plenty of space to pick on awards these movies for every minor detail the we should one, do an episode about backlash i don't think we oh, ever that'd have be a good one i'll write it down um no the one thing i have heard that you just reminded me of with the award season thing was there was one of those like anonymous oscar voter things oh god it's where, starting uh, yeah where <laughs> someone someone said something like I don't think we should give Call Me By Your Name Best Picture because we did that last year. Oh, yeah. Meaning a gay-themed movie won last year. Yeah. God forbid we do two in a row <laughs> as opposed to the 75 straight-themed, you know, straight-character yeah. movies that have won uh, or however many Oscars. That I don't even know how many there are. That, uh, anyway. But I don't actually remember. It's got to be a, coming up on 90. Okay. Um, right? Yeah. 27 was the yeah. first one. Yeah. Well... All right. Okay. You know what's higher than number five. (laughs) Now, if I remember my arithmetic. (laughs) One of the three R's. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Once again, sadly, going back to movies that nobody saw. uh, Kate and Laura Mulevy's Woodshock, uh, which was in one L.A. theater for a stunning two weeks. Uh, This is their... How to describe this? It's kind of a... So there's a lot of stoner dr- comedies out there. This is kind of a stoner drama. Uh, Kirsten Dunst plays a woman whose mother is dying at the beginning of the movie, and she assists her in getting some illicit weed that is potent enough to kill her mother. Uh, I don't know if such a concoction exists, but um, it does in this movie. And so... She, uh, this is by the mother's request. Um, she is uh, ready to be rid of uh, her agony over the unnamed illness that she's in the midst of, and Kirsten Dunst uh, assists her in doing so. And the grief that that causes her uh, is quite immense. Uh, that she really just falls into a bit of a stupor. As with most movies about depression, uh, this has been widely lambasted for not much happening. Uh, because Kirsten Dunst is too depressed to make much happen, which I think is what's so affecting about it. And in addition to that, it's just a weird movie that really likes weed. Uh, There's a lot of random weed leaves that pop up in the movie in places that they really shouldn't be, like a giant neon one in Kirsten Dunst's bedroom. 
Um, but it's all so visually marvelous. Uh, Peter Flickenberg is a cinematographer on it. I don't know any of his prior credits, um, but it kind of takes a cue from a lot of silent and experimental films and actually from uh, Tony Scott's Domino in terms of using the kind of double exposure effect of overlapping images, all of which kind of further disassociates Kirsten Dunst from her reality as she gets kind of further into her own addiction and her own depression. Um, and it it's unusual, I think, that a debut feature is this uh, out in its own territory. So often with debuts, I feel like I can see the movie that they're trying to make or the filmmaker that influenced them. I don't feel that at all with this one. I think they're responding to some very unique uh, motivations in terms of just the relationship with California. The film takes place in Northern California, kind of in the midst of the Redwoods um, and kind of the earthy feel of that area and the way that the characters are at all times surrounded by nature and yet completely cut off from those around them. Uh, it's just a very interesting, extremely watchable movie. I got this for Christmas and couldn't help but pop it in again and watch it all the way through. Uh, so I hope in some way, as with many stoner movies before this, this finds its own little crowd. What enterprising rep theater programmer is going to put together the Virgin Suicides, Melancholia, Woodshock, <laughs> Kirsten Dunst is depressed, triple feature. Uh, I hope that sounds like a new Beverly joint straight up. Uh, I hope they do. You could probably get some beguiled in there as well, actually, now that I think about I mean, it. Probably a number of, of her movies. She's good at playing depressed. What can I say? Uh, actually, I think she's a, a far more estimable actress than people give her credit for. I, I think she has kind of a weird voice and her vocal delivery isn't always convincing, but her facial and physical performance is so I think she's incredibly skilled there and I think the way she relates to the camera is almost unparalleled for her generation I think most actresses aren't as keen on how they come across uh, for the camera but I think she's really really great at that you're preaching to the choir here I'm right always been a fan well, not always I didn't like interview with the vampire <laughs> Uh, you know what I was that's probably going back <laughs> <laughs> well I said always so I, I think you're going to point out like Wimbledon or I something I had to account for myself oh I like Wimbledon oh I like it fine too but yeah, it's just Wimbledon I remember for a long time I had it in my mind that like Kirsten Dunst was like nominated for an Oscar for like supporting actress at one point um, then I got older not even older but just like I took the time to actually think about that and I was like a, I'm thinking of Anna Paquin, yeah. and B, I'm thinking of like an MTV Movie Award that she got for her interview with a vampire because they wanted to like, oh, this little girl, look, she's playing a vampire. Um, she's also wonderful in uh, Marie Antoinette. Yes, I still think that's probably her best work. Hmm. But Dick, true. she's pretty good. Dick's in that. great. Dick's yeah. a good movie. I yeah. finally saw that last fall. Man, that's a good movie. Good stuff. Uh, you know. <laughs> As high as Kirsten Dunst may be in Woodshock, you know it's even higher surely, than that. Surely, you can't get higher than four. Oh, you can't. There are three that can get higher than oh that. Oh, my gosh. Uh, number three is Personal Shopper, that great 2016 movie yeah. that we're all just lying to ourselves about. Uh I was actually not a huge fan of uh, Clouds of Sils Maria. I found myself quite disappointed with that movie. So as much as I was rooting for this, as I am all movies that are lambasted at Cannes, which are inevitably great, uh, so too has Personal Shopper joined those ranks. Uh, Kirsten Dunst plays the titular shopper of a personal nature, uh, who is also 
as with so many other movies on this list, a medium. Um, although she is not as sure of her abilities, uh, she, her brother has recently passed away. He was more sure of his abilities. Um, and she is trying to explore the extent of her own by getting in touch with him or just having any kind of supernatural experience. Um, which Asaeus does not shy away from. There is definitely a ghost vomiting ectoplasm uh, shortly into this movie, and he makes no bones about the spiritual world definitely existing in this context. Um, and this is, uh, I, this is not the first time I've noticed it, but this is the fourth movie on this list that in some way deals with uh, someone's sense of the afterlife, and I don't think it's accidental that all these movies should be coming out so quickly. Um, and I think the reason is exactly what Olivia Sis hits on here, which is uh, Kristen Stewart's relationship to technology. She's constantly checking her phone and at one point possibly texting with the dead. Who can say? Um, but in the same way that in these sorts of movies, ghosts are always surrounding people. I think we day to day live with people always surrounding us and us always being in contact with people who aren't actually there. Um, and so the notion of someone talking to a ghost in this modern context is not so far fetched. And in that way, I think Olivia says has finally hit on the, uh, much envied and often sought and often completely missed, uh, movie about how we live today. Um, in terms of our relationship to the people around us and how we often ignore people who are right next to us in favor of keeping up communications with those far away. Uh, in terms of relationships to celebrities, Kristen Stewart is a personal shopper for kind of an unspecified celebrity. She's perhaps an actress or a model of some kind. Um, but the kind of worship that surrounds uh, her boss is uh, analogous, I think, for Kristen Stewart herself and is a nice way for essayists to kind of reflect uh, the fame that Stewart carries with her. Um, this is actually, I think, the first Kristen Stewart movie I've seen where she really gets kind of a movie star platform. So often she plays these kind of supporting characters for someone who had kind of a star breakout moment. Um, but here, Asaeus is really attuned to the nervous energy she kind of emits. Um, it's kind of put a hand in hand with an kind of unparalleled confidence um, on screen that she can pose in these uh, fantastic, various fantastic wardrobes, both her own and her boss's, um, but also have this kind of stumbling, bumbling kind of Brando-esque energy in terms of how she uh, talks to various people. And I, for my money, it's the best performance I've seen all year. Um, and I think that marriage of it is exactly why. I was also kind of really glad that um, Essays was able to kind of meld a popular thriller with something more esoteric, which is something you see all too rare in the art house cinema, but I think is really well uh, executed here. Yeah, there aren't enough um, art house, I guess, movies that are actually scary. <laughs> and even though there are, I think, stretches of this where it kind of gets away from horror, I think this, the ghost stuff actually did give me chills. In, and the texting like. stuff is really thrilling. Well, that's something else I was going to say. The thing I was going to point out, um, Olivia says in his 60s, somehow is the the one who finally like breaks through in terms of, I think we had, a, as we, in the real world, 
text yeah. more. We we've gone through these stages in movies. The first one was like characters not texting when they would in real right. life, <laughs> and now we're then we got into and we're kind of still into the thing where texting is represented by kind of flashy graphics. Yeah, you know what I mean, pop a bubble kind of look. Yeah, which is still in a lot of a lot of movies. Um, and but Olivia Sayce is the first one to look at. Well, like well to people now, the act of texting and waiting for a text has its own drama. Yeah, it isn't. It isn't as anti-dramatic as we assumed it was because it was different than what we were used to. And Olivia Sayas sees and, and, and translates the drama in, in that. And I think it's, uh, I'm going to use this word again, but it's really invigorating. Yeah, and he also, I mean, he gives us kind of a break. You know, when people can were complaining about this long text exchange between Kristen Stewart and possibly a ghost, they didn't note that it's an international travel by train. <laughs> She's like constantly moving and doing a lot of other things. But I don't think that's pure distraction either. I think it kind of ramps up the tension of waiting for the next text because you know everything she's doing is kind of... It's not the primary thing on her mind. Um, I'll consider moving previous year's movies into my current list when you <laughs> consider not caring what people think it can <laughs> oh it's not that i don't it's, it's not that i care i i enjoy when they hate a movie because i know it probably means it's really good <laughs> and more often than not that's true all right so personal shopper your favorite movie of the year nope. huh? <laughs> it gets hi- yet higher huh if you can believe such a thing uh, I guess, you know what? I guess I'm taking the wrong classes in school. That's all I can say. <laughs> these are teach. These are classes. They don't teach you the foundation. I know. I should have gotten my master's in numbers. Uh, maybe next time. That'll be your second master's. Absolutely. Uh, going to another phantom of sorts, Phantom Thread, the new film from Paul Thomas Anderson. Uh, I, as with so many of our uh film bro collectives love Paul Thomas Anderson <laughs> and eagerly await his each movie. In this case, I begged to get into an early screening of it and was successful. Um, <laughs> and I've now seen the film three times. It gets, uh, I think in some ways richer and more interesting each time, the more I'm able to kind of invest in the dual lead performances by Daniel Day Lewis and, uh, Vicky creeps creeps. Cripes? How are we saying it? I've been saying creeps. So I have know. I, but I feel like somebody else said cripes, and I was like, oh, I, I like feel that. like that. Well, where is she from? Luxembourg. Okay. Which helps me not at all. So it's, okay, so it's a German last name. Okay. You took German yeah. in high school, Dave. And that's, that's what I'm getting at. What I learned <laughs> is that here in the English language, we right. are generally taught that when two, go- two vowels go walking, the first one does the talking, which is actually <laughs> only true about half the time. But yeah. That's what we're taught. But in Germany, what I was taught is that it's more often the other way. Okay. You more often pronounce the second vowel when there's two vowels together. So that's why I've been saying creeps. That's why? Yes. All right. <laughs> because I figure it's a German-ish last name. The E is the second one. I'm saying creeps. Incidentally, okay, so I before E... Except after C. Right. And then That's what's, not what I what, said. What's, I know, I know. I'm saying something else. Separately. Uh, so what's the rest of that? I before E, except after C, or when it makes A as in neighbor or slay. Oh. Or neighbor or way. Right, right. Either way. Uh, when I was a kid. No, just the one way. And I heard. And I, yeah. <laughs> Ironically. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, when I was a kid and I heard that, it's like, I before E, except after C, except after C. And just like. Then why are we even saying this? <laughs> if there's more than one exception, then you know what? What, uh, what are we even doing here? 
it really bothered me as a kid. I'm sorry. So Phantom Thread. Thumbs yes. up. Uh, I liked it. Um, Daniel Day-Lewis was kind of foregrounded and continues to be foregrounded as the protagonist. In some ways he is. He plays uh, a renowned dressmaker uh, in 1950s London, which is an unusual uh, topography for Paul Thomas Anderson, who has heretofore almost exclusively made movies in California. Um, but I think he uh, acclimates himself well to London. Uh, but anyway, so Day-Lewis plays a costume, or costume designer, a dressmaker, um, who goes through habitually a series of kind of young female muses to both satisfy his sexual needs and to give him a model from which to work as he designs these dresses. Um, and Vicky Creeps is the latest one. Uh, her character Alma, uh, at first and for much of the movie, uh, you you figure she's just going to fall into the same trap. She's going to go through this process of kind of trying to break through to him, not quite breaking through, and eventually it's all just going to end up in disappointment as it, and uh, loneliness, as it so often does in Anderson's films. Um, but eventually she managed to get under his skin in a very real way, which has a double meaning for those who have managed to see the film. Uh, and ends up being quite an affecting film, I think, romantically speaking. Uh, it, even though it's as unusual, I suppose. In perverse. Its, perverse would be a good way to put it in terms of its uh, the way it gets to those emotions. Um, the film never quite has moments as unusual as those in the master where a character will suddenly scream pig fuck for no reason. <laughs> um, oh, there's a reason. <laughs> that's true. There is loosely a reason. He's uh, a pig fuck. Yeah. Nor will it have a random fantasy of dozens of dancing naked women. <laughs> um, but uh, the emotional undercurrents within are just as uh, volatile. Perhaps it's fitting for a London set movie that is slightly more restrained. Um, but the emotional tenor is just as volatile and more importantly, the performances are just as uh, enveloped and interesting. I think both actors are very skilled physical performers and the way Anderson frames them against each other, always giving kind of Day-Lewis's character the weight he's assuming in their relationship. Uh, even when she kind of towers above him, he is able to assume the authority in a given situation until eventually he is not. And the way those tables are turned are too, is too interesting to spoil here. Uh, but for those who have seen the film, you, you know how utterly inspired the, the final moments of this film are. Um, yeah, I mean, you said that he is the protagonist, and I guess he is, but because of the table turning you're talking about, I think at the end of the day, I think of I think I think think of her more as the protagonist. I think I lost my train of thought because I meant to say exactly that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, uh, I will... Uh, I, 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 love, I love the movie. It will definitely be on my list. Um, um, I think the one thing I might disagree with you, but not in a, in a bad way, I don't know that he does acclimate himself well to London. Okay. Because the stuff that takes place in the city of London is almost entirely interiors. There's, there's very little, I guess I just meant like English life. Yeah. Then like there's countryside stuff that goes out, but I think it's, um, uh, I think it's very, I I don't think it's by accident. The movie takes place entirely, almost entirely indoors, especially when we're in London, when we're in, uh, not to get all like Darren Aronofsky about it, but the, the house is sort of an extension of him because that's how he, that's how he has designed it. Uh, and so we're 
we're inside his world. We're inside his house. Uh, we don't see much of the street at all. I'm sure that's as much for budgetary reasons. Though you have to figure. <laughs> I mean, uh, I also saw Tulip Fever earlier this year, which is not a good movie by any stretch. But it did make me miss the days when people could afford to go outside and <laughs> movies <laughs> set in the past. Uh, uh, yeah, but some movies do. Well, I, I seem to remember. Um, what was the uh, Whit Stillman movie last year? Um, oh, love and friendship. Yeah, there's a lot of grounds uh, in walking in that. I feel, but like. it's all on these vast estates. It's all yeah, there. You go. That's good. That's, that's <laughs> something at least. There's no like city set thing where they have to like bump into locals, right, where I you see, have to pay saying. to costume an extra. You know, right? That kind right. of stuff. I mean, it certainly worked well for this movie, but you can imagine it being made 15 years ago or so, and the studio saying, "Look, what are we paying for here?" <laughs> <laughs> um, you said you've seen it three times. Uh, yes. Like with all, especially the last, uh, especially with There Will Be Blood and The Master in this, I look forward to rewatching it multiple times so I can discover how much more of a comedy it is than I initially. Like, it's funny, but this with There Will Be Blood and The Master, like, I, I those are movies that I... I, la- I laugh at so much when I watch them now because he has a he has a strange sense of humor that comes across um, obviously in his more overt comedies like Punch Drunk Love and Inherent Vice. But um, has this movie gotten funnier? I guess is the no. Question. I think it's gotten less funny. Really? <laughs> um, I some without naming names, some people's objection to the movie, and I understand why, is that you spend so much of this movie with him just berating her. Uh, and in this year of our Lord 2017, <laughs> I understand why for some that would be hard to take. Uh, but I, as much as I don't think that's a detriment to the movie, and I think the film ends up twisting it to a very effective place, and as much as I thought that it was totally honest about that type of relationship up until mm-hmm. then, um, I can both understand, I can certainly understand why people would object to it, but I definitely can't understand why people think it's as funny as it is. I've heard a lot of people talk about how funny it is. And I just don't see that as much. I mean, he has some very clever twists of phrase, but they're the kind of twists of phrase that I have certainly <laughs> unleashed in my own private life and been ashamed of later, you know, it's, and so watching it for me, there was a self reflection there that I didn't always make me proud of myself, but, uh, which I thought was honest and not in a, an amusing way. But I think the stuff like with in there with blood, I'm not, I don't laugh at, um, what's his name? What's the character's name in the movie? Daniel Plainview. I don't laugh at him being mean to people. I come to laugh at him a lot of the, as, as I watch it, like when he's, um, this is one that my, my wife pointed out to me as her favorite moment in the movie, which is, uh, when he comes to see uh, the the the, pe- the people who won't sell, if you yeah, remember, right. Dirty Blood, and he talks to the son, and there's just a shot of him looking in the window with this like scowl on his face, <laughs> and and she was like, "That's funny," and I was like, "You're right, that's funny," uh, and so I think it's going to be more. I think I find I will find myself more laughing at his name is Reynolds Woodcock. I'll probably laugh at him oh, a little bit, if nothing uh, else, for that reason. Um, like when he said he, he says something like, "Have you been sent to ruin my night and my life?" <laughs> like, He's and possibly my entire life. Possibly my entire life. dinner. Yeah. You ruined my night and possibly my entire life. I think I, if I laugh at it more going on, it'll be uh, sort of uh, laughing at his pomposity. Having not seen it, that line just seemed like something Eeyore would say. <laughs> <laughs> it's even, there's more to the line than that. And it, it is, I, I certainly recognize the comedy of it. There's more to the line than that. It is very funny. But I think. I don't know. I, I think I took seriously enough her plight that it was tough for me to laugh at. Um, whereas with like with the neighbors in 
terrible blood. Uh-huh. Like they're so minor characters. Right. Like right. I don't really care if they're if their night is ruined by him scowling at them. You know, <laughs> okay. it right. doesn't matter as much. Well, I look and, forward to watching it again anyway. Yeah. Uh, Sorry, I cut you off. No, I can't remember what else I was going to say about it, but. Uh, Damn. Oh, yes. I did want to add that I really like in Anderson's last three movies, his approach to spirituality. They are by no means religious films, but he has some sense of uh, that which we cannot see in the eternal and all that. Uh, There's a a monologue Vicky Creeps gives towards the end that is a total escalation of what's been going on that is very moving in its uh, imagination. All right. All right. By my count. Number 11. We're talking Tyler. about top 10 here. I'm going to write to your professors. <laughs> okay. You certainly shouldn't be grading papers with this kind of approach. God knows how the students have actually been doing. Like I've given people like uh, an M. Oh God. Uh, and like a Z. Turns out you need to major in letters too. <laughs> oh man. It sounds like an 18th century kind of major. I've lettered in majors. Uh, I'm sorry. Okay, this is, I, 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 I I'm sorry. I haven't seen any of your movies, so this is no. I'm sorry. I, an argument could be made. I've not contributed anything. I wish I was more fond of. I don't know. What have you seen? You said Justice you saw League. Mother. I did see Mother. I really liked Mother. Not not enough for the top ten. Yeah. Um, and actually, when we get to my top ten, like there's actually a surprising number of films in there that didn't really got a, a, an extremely limited release. So I'm looking forward to hearing this. All right. Uh, number one is a film, which I am sure neither of you have seen Terrence Malick's song to song. Mm. Uh, it is the conclusion of his surprising trilogy of films. He made after the tree of life, which were made very quickly, uh, without more than a scenario for a screenplay. Um, and with, uh, in some cases, many of the same actors, um, this one stars principally Rooney Mara, Ryan Gosling, Michael Fassbender, Natalie Portman, though Kate Blanchett, Holly Hunter, Val Kilmore, Patty Smith, and Iggy Pop also show up. I can always say Iggy Pop the way Philip Seymour Hoffman does in uh, Almost Famous. <laughs> <laughs> That's always the way I read that name. Um, just like this is a huge tangent. You guys remember the Sky Captain in the World of Tri- Tomorrow trailer? No, I, rem- I remember the movie. Yeah, I remember recall the trailer. Well, in the trailer, uh, the announcer voice guy says, and Angelina Jolie, which is always <laughs> how I, how I read her name, uh, which adds some levity to first they killed my father. Um, song to song, uh, as with night of cups, this is about a sort of, uh, bacchanalia of artistic community. In that case, it was Hollywood. And we've seen so often the depraved side of Hollywood that I had a hard time really registering it as something kind of fresh. And this time he's taking on the music scene, which is so often romanticized and which here is depicted at times as quite hellish. Uh, he actually shot during an Austin music festival. And the way these people celebrate music is, uh, quietly terrifying for an introvert such as myself. Uh, it's very physical. It's very messy. Uh, it's sometimes very dangerous. Um, and he reflects that in tor- sort of the upper echelons as well. Uh, Michael Fassbender plays a music producer who is just as uh, uncaring about the actual art of music as every stereotypical film executive we've seen too many times in movies. Um, Ryan Gosling and Rooney Mara play struggling artists who kind of fall under his spell to varying capacities and which who he then exploits uh, in Mara's case for sex and in Gosling's case for uh, the illusion of friendship that he can then uh, exert power over. Um, But it is more principally about Rooney Mara's character. Um, 
And she really acquits herself very well to Terrence Malick's form of working in Malick's last two films. Much as I liked uh, Night of Cups and more so to The Wonder, there are moments in both those films where you see Christian Bale and Ben Affleck looking literally lost. Not their characters lost, but the actors <laughs> uncertain of what they're supposed to be conveying in any given scene. Uh, not so with Mara. She is... It was weird in To The Wonder when he just <laughs> looks off camera and shrugs. <laughs> he might actually do that. Fair enough, yeah. I, uh, as far as I can remember, some of those shots are quite short. Um, but Mara is uh, very attuned to what Malik's after and how she can kind of relate to the camera, relate to other characters in a very physical way. Uh, the film's first line is very stupid, and I thought at first we'd be in some dicey territory uh, where Rooney Mara says something in voiceover like, there was a time when I only used sex for violence and I wanted to feel something real. Um, but Malik ends up contorting that into something very positive in terms of when you see her uh, attain positive physical relationships, it really lands all the more, both because we have that foundation and because Malik works so well physically with his actors that they really seem to be connecting on a very real way, especially given this modern uh, kind of working method he uses, which is there's a lot of improvisation and the actors are kind of left to their own devices. That cinematographer, Emmanuel Lubezki, is then forced to kind of follow. You know, there's a moment on the beaches of Mexico where uh, Michael Fessbender just starts impersonating an ape and chasing Rooney Mara around and the camera is literally chasing them down the beach. Um, which you, you don't you don't see in a lot of movies the camera being caught off guard by performers, which I really mm. uh, enjoyed in this film. I think especially uh, it also has just a great sense of place. You know, it takes place in Austin, but that's still a part of Texas, and so there's a real background of Christianity that runs through it. Uh, Portman's character kind of struggles with uh, being familiar with her faith and holding on to the rituals that she. Uh, almost attends entirely alone, um, but unsure of how to kind of apply that to her life. Um, and it's just a, a very touching and very straightforward film. You know, Malik is kind of renowned or hated for the directness of his voiceovers. Um, but, you know, who hasn't asked questions like, I don't know how to change. I want to. How do you? Um, I, I don't know how people are uninterested in these movies, uh, especially those who see them and just dismiss them as though they're uh, simply trifles. Um, and more so, I think Malik grounds those voiceovers in kind of everyday actions. You know, a lot of these voiceovers we hear about while people are out for a walk or riding on a boat. It's not while they're in deep moments of introspection, but I think those are the deep moments of introspection in most of our lives that we're going about doing everyday things and these very intense thoughts kind of creep in that we can't uh, let out. But uh, in films such as these, we can. Um, the more I see it, the more I think there's really quite a lot there. I really think it's one of Malick's best films. Uh, I think it's the best one he's made since The New World. Um, and it just keeps opening itself more up to that. And it's just, it's just amazing to look at. There's, uh, they go on a hot air balloon ride at one point. That's kind of How a, fun is that? Uh, <laughs> I haven't seen... Um... I was going to say I haven't seen any since To the Wonder, but I did see the IMAX uh, one, um, yeah. the name of Voyage of Time. Voyage of Time. I saw that. Um, but uh, that's kind of, but what you just said is kind of how I felt about To the Wonder. Like I didn't dislike it. I didn't love it. But I was it was so much fun to look at. Yeah. Uh, I just like the way he and Lubezki see things. Uh, it's too bad that Lubezki is not on the next film that Malik's making, which is said to be more of a return to hmm. kind of structured formats. Um, we'll see uh, I know. what happens in the editing room. More of a return. Um, 
But uh, speaking to the wonder, I, I, I often wonder if Olga Karolinko is not in movies anymore because she's still dizzy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Five years in, still on those jokes. <laughs> did, I, did I make that joke? No, everyone was making those jokes when the movie came out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I probably did. It was five years ago because uh, I did see it when it came out. Uh, but she's in The Death of Stalin, which is... Uh, it's oh, advanced. sweet. Uh, that's the new uh, uh, what's his name uh, Armando Iannucci oh, alright anyway uh, yeah uh, I'm sorry you ended with one that I haven't seen it's on it's on my to watch list this is why we don't do our top 10 <laughs> yeah. uh, right away because it gives us time to, to catch up sure and to celebrate um, all of our contributors uh, top, they won't all be episodes this is the only top 10 episode besides me and Tyler's but on the website you can find you'll be able to find Scott's top 10 soon I imagine yes uh, Tuesday a Tuesday and then regularly through uh, up until we do our top 10 episode the week before the Oscars mm-hmm. uh, there will be contributors top 10s yeah. so we yeah, we don't we don't rush to cram in all our end of year coverage before the end of December. We stretch it out yeah. for two months, uh, and this was an awesome kickoff. Good, and it Absolutely. gave me some some stuff. Uh, I mean, there were stuff that Song to Song and Hermia and Helena are already on my on my radar. Um, I had kind of forgotten about Planetarium, so I'm kind of uh, if you'd like to borrow my discs of any of the above, I can lend them to you. Okay, uh, I might uh, might take you up on that. Um, but uh, thanks so much for for uh, taking us on this journey through yeah. 2017 in cinema. Thanks for having me and uh, not asking about my worst stuff. I have no answer. Yeah, I wasn't gonna I certainly wasn't gonna ask on mic, but I was probably, <laughs> I was, I was probably gonna ask when we, okay. uh, when we wrapped things up. Uh, what else do we have to say? Uh, Nothing. There's, uh, we talked about what's on the website. We didn't talk about the premium content on oh, the that's website. that's true, yes. You know, I'm, as I mentioned, I'm, uh, I'm headed off to Sundance uh, pretty soon here. Um, uh, and so, uh, when you purchase stuff from our premium content that helps us pay for things like Sundance and, and other stuff. Absolutely. We put, uh, every, every dollar you spend, whether it be on bonus episodes or commentaries, or even if you just donate it, um, every, uh, every dollar that you, uh, throw our way is put directly into the show and website. We don't put it in our own pockets. Yeah. Um, and so, and please don't think that because we have our wonderful sponsors that we don't need your money. We're on easy street. We, we very much do. No, but yeah, but we don't, we don't, I mean, yeah, you can donate, but we don't ask for shit up donations. You can, Absolutely. We, we provide content, uh, including some more to come probably after we're done with the year end stuff. We'll, we have, uh, our commentaries for 2018. Yeah. We have a fun idea, right? We do. I'm I'm running it through my head, and I'm just like I just don't know if we can get guests for that thing. Oh, um, I'm sure we can. We probably can. I'm not worried at but all. Anyway, all right. Um, so that's it. Thanks for listening. Oh wait, no. You can find us at battleshipretention.com. Blah blah blah. There's all that stuff. I there. gotta plug my stuff. Um, yeah, I was gonna say I forgot about all the plugs. Um, including you can. There's reviews of some of the things that Scott talked about. Certainly from scott there's woodshock yeah know. song to song song to song you review uh, i wrote about planetarium it wasn't a proper review okay. but i wrote about it and i reviewed phantom thread and probably something else that was on that list um <coughs> who wrote about call me by your name that'd um, be david that would be me okay. uh yeah what was that me 
For Sundance, anyway. For Sundance. Maybe someone think, else did a review properly. I think Rita might have done did the, 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 yeah, right. the theatrical release. Uh, so there's, yeah, two reviews of Calling By Your Name on there. All right. So all that stuff's on there. Uh, you can find us, at, uh, email us at david at battleshipretention.com or tyler at battleshipretention.com. I'm on Twitter uh, at Davey Pretension. Tyler's on Twitter at Tyler Pretension. Is More Than One Lesson still dark? Yes, and probably will be for a while. But uh, okay. there's still, that's the podcast. At the website, there are new reviews. Our uh, contributor, Reed, is going to be starting up a long uh, series of articles covering the entire career of Alfred Hitchcock. So that'll be long. Check, uh, check it out. Yeah. Um, Scott, where can people find you on the Internet? Uh, well, right here next week doing our Sundance preview episode of which Tyler, I'm sure, will have much to say. We can finally bring well, you in, Tyler. You I know, think we're going to, this is behind the scenes <laughs> talk, but we're going to keep it loose. I don't think we're going to, because we learned from our, this year's Comic-Con preview episode, right. yeah. that just going through the schedule is not, not as very much fun. interesting. We could yeah. just use the schedule as kind of a jumping off point, and it'll be a loose conversation. I and yet, I, having not been to uh, <laughs> Sundance, I guess I'll probably just contribute what I did to this one, which is, distraction <laughs> uh, but no you can you you know as much about these movies that's as Scott true. And I, will. I guess that's true <laughs> so yeah um also we recently on criterion cast did a best of the year episode for criterion releases that's a lot of fun what's the best one uh i said what did i say othello which i just got for christmas it's really it's really a incredible release mm. i'm sure you've seen the film before right oh yes it's a great film. Uh, and then, like I said, my top 10 will be posted on Tuesday. Hopefully I'll have more to say there than necessarily what I said here. So it's unique content for the rate readers and listeners. Uh, and, oh yeah, I'm also going to Sundance, but through Criterion cast and we're having a fundraiser for it. Uh, obviously there are more worthy causes out there. So don't feel like you have to give like battleship. <laughs> sure. Uh, <laughs> But we we try to spice it up a little bit by giving away free discs to those who donate. Um, mm. In this case, uh, I have still sealed copies of Jean Dielman and mm. Only Angels Have Wings, both on Criterion, uh, to give away at random to those who donate. So a little incentive there. But I will be out in the cold, scurrying into movies regardless. All right. Uh, thanks at home for listening. We'll get you next time. Bye. Bye. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet. 